0: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross tiffany cross join me and be a part of sisterhood friendship wisdom and laughter we gather a seasoned elder myself as the middle generation and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had listen to across generations podcast on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast
4: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your
3: podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. This episode also contains a graphic description of physical violence. Listener discretion is advised. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast, and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees.
5: I kept repeating myself and I said, that's my stepdad. He tried to kill me. Um, That's my stepdad. He tried to kill me. That's my stepdad. He tried to kill me. And I kept repeating that so that people would know, don't go near him. Also, I'm not the killer, but I technically defended myself and handled that. So I just try to give people as little information as possible, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. enough to where they would stay away and also not think I was the person that, like, intended to do this.
2: Being a survivor of a violent crime, whether because it happened to you or because it happened to someone you love and you were nearby when it happens, is a defining traumatic experience. This can be magnified if it is something that happens within your family. We are joined here on Navigating Narcissism by two survivors who experience life-changing experiences and who have joined together on their new podcast, Survivor Squad, to share stories of survival from their unique perspective. Tara Newell is the daughter of Deborah Newell, whose relationship with John Meehan the Dirty John story we have talked about on this podcast. Collier Landry is executive producer of A Murder in Mansfield, a documentary about his journey of grief, understanding, and resolve in the wake of his father's murder of his mother over 20 years ago. We are fortunate in these next two episodes to hear about their stories and what they have learned not only about themselves, but about these kinds of toxic personalities. We have already heard the story of Dirty John, a story of a toxic relationship between Deborah Newell and John Meehan, which has become the blueprint for manipulative, toxic relationships and has inspired podcasts, TV shows, and books. However, the end of the story with John's death reminds us that these aren't stories in which just the person in the relationship is affected. Tara Newell, Deborah's daughter, recognized that John's behavior was toxic. She shared her concerns with her mother, and like a psychopathic person would, John recognized it and attempted to drive a wedge between Tara and her mother. After John and Deborah's relationship ended, John continued to stalk and menace Deborah and her children. This culminated in a fateful night when John showed up to the parking lot of Tara's apartment building. Today, we hear Tara's story, a story that reminds us that narcissistic and psychopathic and toxic relationships of any kind are never just about the two people in it, but about the many people around the relationship who may see the red flags and who may represent a threat to the toxic person. What happened that day and in the months and years after is a reminder that the harm of these relationships don't just end when the relationship ends. I'd like to start with, how did the two of you meet and get connected, because I got to say, your stories are so unique.
5: Well, I'll let Collier start because I was actually on his podcast, Mm. Moving Past Murder, and that's when we first connected, and then for me, it was just really great to hear someone that took their own narrative and made a documentary about it and whatnot, and so that's at least, like, how I started connecting through Collier.
4: Yeah, so I had Tara as a guest and her mother Debra on Moving Past Murder which is another podcast that I do. And I was like, wow, we have this kindred spirit that <laughs> not a lot of people <laughs> have. And it's it's you know, as we say in Survivor Squad, it's a club that we all don't really want to be a part of. Right. We just happen to be a part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just started vibing. I had her on a couple of times and we just became friends and you know. You
2: said something so important Collier. There's not a lot of folks like us out there. And there must in some ways, and I think many trauma survivors will echo this, a loneliness to being a trauma survivor. But even a multiplied loneliness when it's what the two of you experience. In your case, homicide call. In your case, self-defense, Tara. Which involved a lot of media attention. That's a very unique place. And again, for many people, it starts to feel like a really lonely place. So to have each other to talk to and have those places where you can share what that feels like that other people may be able to offer empathy this is a different level of empathy that yeah. you can give to each other and today i think also bring an empathy to the survivor experience of many people who've experienced these kinds of toxic relationships so not maybe not at the level you did obviously but in some ways the themes are the same
4: so thank you well thank you for having thank us
5: yeah yeah I know was both by Johns, too.
4: (laughs) Yeah, right. That's right. That's an interesting thing. And one was a doctor and one was pretending to be a doctor. There's some very odd Mm -hmm. parallels to our stories. She has a Mansfield connection. It's just, it's like after we started comparing notes, it just got weirder.
2: That's (laughs) fascinating. You know, the doctor part's not lost on me, though, because I think, Certain professions hiding psychopathy sure. behind those professions because being a doctor is considered such a venerable, safe profession yeah. that it's actually a great place for a psychopath to hide. You know, it's like a plain sight kind of a thing because yeah. I think that the profession holds that. So I'm going to start with you, Tara. As you know, we have had your mom, Deborah, come on the show, and the world has finally heard your mother, Deborah Newell's story of side of the story once and for all. She's now written her book. She's sharing her side of the story. We know the stories that were told before that were a bit of a distortion and didn't give the the sort of the full truth. However, and this is always something that's been there for me, you're such a major part of the story, independent of your mother's story. So I am so glad to be able to speak with you because you bring an experience not only in it, but then obviously in the aftermath of it too. One thing to me, Tara, that's so interesting about your story is that you were not actually really able to tell your own story, right? It was told through television. It was told through the LA Times story. Can you give us a sense of what they got right and what they didn't get right?
5: So I want to start with the show first Mm -hmm. because it's more, well, I want to say it's newer in Mm -hmm. a sense. So the show started off with having julia gardner play me Mm -hmm. and i wasn't really seen in the show it was just basically a secondary character but at the end this thing happens to her and you don't get to know her personality you think that she's okay like a fun loving girl like sweet nice and stuff but you don't get to know the depth of her character and i understand that because also i didn't get to meet julia gardner before Mm. i ended up meeting her She's also a really big actress that's Mm -hmm. working all the time and stuff. So she's traveling back and forth. So it wasn't the lack of that she didn't want to meet me. The producers, the stunt coordinator, and the director, they met with me. And the one part that they really did get right was my attack. Mm. And I was so grateful for that because... That was the one thing that needed to be viewed through my eyes. And there's like one thing that she did differently, which she put her back up. I actually put my purse under my heart to protect my heart. The scene was exactly like that. Just the purse was in a Mm -hmm. different spot. And then my mom didn't help him get better from drugs. Mm. The scene for Thanksgiving was a lot different because I got into a, an argument with John and my mom the night before Thanksgiving. And I am the youngest. Mm-hmm. I am more similar to my mom in ways of appeasing. Mm. And I really have learned her dynamic in relationships and have repeated that dynamic in my relationships. I like to say I worked on it now, but that has been a past pattern of mine. So I really I was really able to see the dynamics mm-hmm. and stuff, but it was just interesting because it's for a show, the TV show. And I think that the podcast really did get the dynamic of generational trauma. Yeah. I appreciate that. I don't think my mom appreciated it at the time. Because it's so hard to be told. Your family is messed up, mm-hmm. in a sense, and yeah. it, by all these people. And then all these people are nitpicking. If you're not aware of your generational trauma, mm-hmm. and people are telling you, you're going to have to have shields up to protect yourself because you're not ready. Yeah. And all these people are coming at you. So that feels like a threat to the nervous system. So, you know, you got to be on guard. Mm-hmm. And then it takes a while, like, I think, feel like years later to realize oh wow generational trauma is a thing yeah exactly in our family
2: mm-hmm. it really is so uh, we always we, again the story has always been told from your mother's perspective i'd like to hear from you what were your first impressions of john Meehan? my
5: first impressions of him was i honestly wanted to appease to my mom i wanted to like this guy My sister was so angry that this guy was in the picture. She didn't like him. My sister is also more activated in her fight response. And so she's going to be more vocal about things. She's going to put her foot down. She's going to create a scene more. Where I... I'm like, okay. I want to get to know him. I want to see if he's really the guy that my sister says he is, or is he the guy that my mom says he is? And I really, truly wanted him to be this guy that my mom says he was. But there was little things I would ask him questions. He would give me one-worded answers where I wasn't able to elaborate. But knowing me, I just like, okay, you give me that one word. I'll ask like 10 more questions, Mm. you know? And I really want to get to know people because I think that people are so interesting. They're so—a lot of times they're beautiful with their minds and stuff, where John was just not giving me that energy, But he knew a lot about my medical problems because I was actually having stomach ulcer issues. Mm -hmm. I was having thyroid issues also. And it was off the charts because I was in a relationship. That relationship was coming to an end. And so, like, my cortisol levels were super high. I was just on edge all the time. And John told me that it might be ovarian cyst. So I was like, oh, okay, like, that sounds normal. Mm -hmm. So I actually went to OBGYN. I got my levels tested and found out a bunch of stuff there. And this doctor didn't want me to go to another place because she saw that it was just stress causing this.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: And it was the stress from my mom and these unhealthy dynamics with my relationship. And I mean, my medical problems got worse as John was in our lives Mm -hmm. because... I ended up getting in a fight with my mom the day before Thanksgiving. I ended up just asking her, like, why is John using your car? Why is he doing this? He seems hyped up on drugs because I also had friends that were frequent flyers, and one of the things was they would say their arm would hurt all the time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. John was like, oh, my arm hurts. So I went to the hospital. And I was like, hmm, that's an addict thing.
2: Hmm, that's interesting. One thing I remember about the story was that your mother had been with John for a little while before you actually met him in person because you were living in another city. Yes. And so your sister's impression was made pretty early on. She met him very early in your mom's relationship and then you met him later. What was so interesting about something you just said, Terry, she's like, my mom had her experience and she liked him and I was hoping to sort of meet her where she was at. My sister had one experience and wasn't very good. But what you weren't doing actually was holding space for the idea that Tara is going to have her own experience. In many ways, you felt like I've either got to make my sister's experience or my mother's experience work. And that's a real manifestation also of how that family system worked. It's not like I don't get my own independent assessment. I'm going to have to make one of these two impressions fit.
5: Oh, wow. Wow. That's a really big
2: realization there. You know, that there was no space for Tara to say, what do I think of this guy? Like, okay, you have your experience, but let me see how I feel. And that, though, Tara, is not unusual for a person who's been around high-conflict personalities, like you said, intergenerationally. In a way, there's no space for our own subjective reality Okay. When we've been through those cycles, it's as though i mean I have to pick from the shelf of opinions that's been given to me, but I don't get to shape my own. Oh, wow. And over time, you did. Yeah. You did shape your own.
5: I think it took a while, even after I was attacked and everything, to realize I had a voice. Mm. And to realize that I could trust my intuition because that is something that saved me. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And,
5: uh, you know, when you're around all these narcissists, these psychopaths, these sociopaths, these interesting figures like my whole life has been around them you know my mom has been with many of these interesting Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. even uh, my family members have been these interesting people and I want to say like my brother's not but there's been other people in Mm -hmm. my family
2: that have these traits, Uh uh think. Yeah, I think there's somebody in just about everybody's family (laughs) that has these traits. And the fortunate ones don't have many of them, but I I don't know of many. I guess the people who don't have these traits in family, I never meet them. So I think that's really what it is. As you got to know John, there were things that were unsettling you about him beyond just the one-word answers. What were some of the patterns you were seeing in him that maybe now you'd identify as being consistent with psychopathy or narcissism. But at the time, you just felt, this is not cool. Like, this doesn't feel good. What were some of those early patterns?
5: There was this one time where we went out to dinner. It was before I had this confrontation with my mom and John. And we were in the car. I was with my boyfriend at the time and then my best friend. And we were all in the back. And I try to get out of the car. The child lock was on the car. And so I asked John, I'm like, hey, can you please let me out? He didn't hear me or thought he didn't mm-hmm. hear me. And then so I say it a little bit louder. And I'm soft spoken. So this could go either way. So I say it a little bit louder. He literally gets out of the car, goes upstairs and doesn't let me out. And I'm like, did I just like, did Mm. I just see that right? Did I hear that right? And then I look at my friends and we're like, maybe he didn't hear us, but for him it was like, oh, I don't need to do this. This is the first step of isolating them. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. (sighs) So it was like you didn't exist. Yes. He was literally not responding to you as though you didn't exist, which is a form of gaslighting. Oh, yeah. Because you do exist. Oh, yeah. And so just negating your existence by literally not responding and then storming off, it's as though your very existence was aggravating him. So he was going to storm away from that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and
5: I don't get why because I feel like I'm trying to be nice and cooperative. But, you know, I'm the one that's going to take the money from her. I'm Mm. the one that's going to buzz into her ear. And so I'm the first one that he needs to get rid of other than Jacqueline. Well, Jacqueline was the first one because Jacqueline was the one starting problems from the beginning, but then I was the second one because, oh, I'm taking her resources, Mm. I'm taking her time, and I'm going to be the one to be the voice of reason.
2: And it's so interesting. You just said something, Tara, that I heard was that She was the one causing problems. Jacqueline, your sister, she was the one causing problems in the beginning. Jacqueline actually wasn't causing problems. Jacqueline was actually seeing the situation clearly. But it speaks to how much John brainwashed the situation, because it really was being painted as Jacqueline was causing problems. But what Jacqueline wasn't doing was going along with the status quo of someone who was making her uncomfortable, and so that was viewed as being a troublemaker. Oh. And anyone who's a truth teller in these kinds of narcissistic systems almost immediately gets painted as a problem. That identity of being the problem, the person causing trouble, is what gets internalized. And even going into the future, when that person sees a situation that doesn't feel cool, and they're like, well, I'm the troublemaker. And my thought is, you, you ain't no troublemaker. You're just calling this stuff out straight. But we tend that, that tendency to be pathologized for seeing something clearly that language still persists. That's the kind of thing that saying that Jacqueline saw it clearly seems to be closer to the truth. I'm sure your mother didn't like it at the time. Well, and Jacqueline's very reactive.
5: Mm-hmm. And when— Someone's yelling at you. Mm -hmm. You're actually not able to hear that octave and hear and listen perfectly. (laughs) So you're not receiving that information. Where when I was able to say certain things, it was able to penetrate my mom's thoughts Mm -hmm. a little bit more, but I still was going to take away her happiness and going to take away her oxytocin, going to take away Mm -hmm. this
2: guy from her life when she's so physically connected to him right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean it's it is so interesting that caregiving was in a way not speaking truth. You know, I think that once a person's really been through it in any form of narcissistic, psychopathic, sociopathic relationship, the hope is, the win is that you become discerning. Okay. I mean, Tara, and I've said this, I said it when I talk with your mom, I've said it when I've spoken about this situation before. Had John not died, okay, or had, and had you not defended yourself and his life ended it on that day, someone in your family, most likely you, but someone in your family was going to be harmed or killed, right? That, that's the end of the story. That level of tragedy almost becomes a sort of rock bottom. Now, you're seeing these patterns, right? You're trying to be protective of mom. You're also hearing Jacqueline's reactions. How did you start to express your concerns to your mother about patterns you were seeing? That were making you uncomfortable. Again, Tara, you didn't have the vocabulary of narcissism or narcissistic abuse or psychopathy when you were seeing all these signs and signals, but something didn't feel right. You were sensing it. How did you communicate that with her, or did you?
5: So I would just say, hey, mom, don't you think it's weird that all his cars got stolen and he has a couple different stories for this situation, Don't you think it's weird that he's a doctor and he doesn't have a car? Isn't that weird that the insurance haven't cleared it up by now? Because the insurance with this one situation with my car cleared it up within a week. Like, this is crazy. And I just started asking her logical questions.
2: How did you respond to that?
5: Oh, Tara, like, he's a doctor. Like... He's just, like, busy all the time. Mm. Oh, he knows what he's doing. Oh, like,
2: it's still being investigated.
4: Stop making trouble, Tara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Stop> making trouble. <laughs>
2: It's interesting you hit her with logic because basically what you were doing is you're sort of poking holes in a psychopath's ground game, right? Because they're all about lies, deceits, aliases, cover stories. They're really remarkably good at lying and keeping their lies straight. That's actually a real sort of signature move of psychopathy, whereas the rest of us, we just get really confused if we start lying, right? That said, you were hitting her with logic. Did you at any point say to your mother— Something here just doesn't feel right to me. I'm uncomfortable. He's doing these things that make me feel uncomfortable.
5: Nope, because the second I started to have those logical questions was the minute that he picked a fight with me. I got kicked out of the house mm-hmm. that they were living in. Two months, they moved in together. And then I, like, I did all the grocery shopping for Thanksgiving, and I wasn't able to go to Thanksgiving the next day because of him.
2: He made sure that that didn't happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was all the isolation dynamic, which, again, is that kind of toxic relationship 101. Take away anyone. Because in, in a way, what you could have been to her, Tara, was the anti-gaslight, right? The gaslighting doesn't work if you have one solid person in your life who's saying, oh, no, no. This yeah. is the reality. Oh, no, no, you didn't remember it wrong. This is what happened. You can't gaslight someone if they've got that support. So the only way a gaslighter can play their game is to remove any other influences that will counter them and only keep people around that are on the gaslighter's team. And he didn't really have a team, which is interesting. So he just had to get rid of all of you. He
5: had no one.
2: He had no one, which is all the more remarkable for how much he was able to isolate her. Because sometimes you'll have people in your corner, right? Other family members or friends that you know are going to be your yes people. But in your family's case, he could sense. I mean, and it's not like it's logical. Like, okay, got to get rid of the people who can stop me from gaslighting. But as soon as they sense that someone has someone's ear, they get them out of the way. And so as soon as you started raising these concerns, he saw you as a menace yeah, and really wanted you out of the picture. Do you think he saw you as more of a menace or Jacqueline?
5: I think he saw us both, but I think he saw me as the more like one that liked to plan mm-hmm. and the one that had more logic. I actually cut off contact from my mom because mm-hmm. I wanted to prove to her that I don't want your money. Mm-hmm. All I want is you to be my mom mm-hmm. and have quality time with you. And so I started to separate from that, to show that. And then there was just more stuff that happened here and there. And now I'm like, trauma brain, I lost your question. (laughs) No, you you know what? It's funny. I
2: I could see you losing my question, and that's, I mean, don't pathologize yourself. Remember what every trauma survivor needs to remember. Instead of us viewing the traumatized parts of the way the nervous system responds as it letting us down— view it as protecting you. For a minute you're being pulled out of this conversation because it didn't feel okay. It was a way to feel safe. It's really quite remarkable how we protect ourselves hmm. but we don't do it well. Like we don't realize that we have a lot of negative self-talk so be kind to yourself. I saw it literally happening in real time so yeah. you're good. And like I said trauma brain is protective brain. I always call it an oh, sort of an overactive security guard. I'm like okay, we're good. What so. is it like
5: the hippocampus shuts off? Well it's, it's what you
2: got is this whole system of the amygdala, the hippocampus and how that works with the frontal lobes of the the brain. It's like this sort of fear network that plays. And how we process information that is, especially when we're talking about that event, we almost go right back to it because it's so encoded somatically okay. for us. And so we're having these strong reactions that feel really overwhelming. Of course, like the body actually does it a little better. And the mind is like a bossy gaslighter, like, stop that. And the body's like, no, no, something doesn't feel right here. And you're talking about this. That's yeah. what we would expect. Before it all culminated and when John attacked you. Did you ever directly confront John about his behavior, about his conduct, or even that you were on to him?
5: No. Mm. You want to know what I said? Yeah. And this is what everyone should say if they're working with or want to like try to prove someone wrong. I use reverse psychology. I was like, mom, I would love to talk to him. I would love to work things out. Please let him know that. And I kept reiterating that. And I think she went back to him and he was like, Tara's wanting to work things out. And he was just like, no. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well,
5: I never heard about his responses, but I'm assuming they weren't.
2: So what's interesting is then that you actually really were saying, okay, I'm going to extend an olive branch. It was actually a really, it was a clever move because his goal was to isolate. Mm -hmm. There was no point in making you into an ally. And in a way, you almost made yourself a little more dangerous, right? Because then he recognized that he no longer has the defense of, look, Tara doesn't like me. She's trying to come between us. So you took away that defense for him. But what? another thing you may not recognize how wise it was was to not directly confront him that you saw him and you got him. Because if you had done that, you would have just been pushing fast forward on the button. That would have led to the inevitable attempt to harm you. There's nothing a narcissist, psychopath, or sociopath hates more than somebody saying, I know what you're about. They really want to think they're the most clever person in the room. And if you're going to be the one to pull (laughs) off the mask, it's going to be swift justice from them. And so you really, without knowing it, did the right things
5: well i knew what i was doing when i was doing that i was like this is going to throw a wrench in his plan
2: absolutely gonna throw a wrench but even the not calling him out like a lot of people say i get what you are you're a money-grubbing you know that that kind of reactive response is what people
4: tend to do and it's also what they want yes because then you know they can control you barking Uh dogs don't bite
2: no exactly right that's right
5: Well, I did that when I confronted my mom about Thanksgiving that day before and whatnot. And he started screaming at me and he was like, you just want your mom's money. You want this. And I was like, no, John, that's what you want. And I also threw a lot of F-words at him and whatnot. Mm. And then my mom even asked my boyfriend at the time because he was in the room with us when this is happening. And she's like, what is your opinion? And he was just like, well, you know, I agree with Tara. These are questionable things. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. My session with Tara and Collier will continue after this break.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
6: hey i'm jay shetty and i'm the host of on purpose on purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier healthier and more healed this week i talked to tiffany haddish in a hilarious deep thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma
7: have fun but then he would treat me like crap.
6: Listen to on purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.
3: So Tara, walk us
2: through what led up to the attack by John.
5: My mom had left him for the second time. She moved all all of her stuff out of the Vegas house that they got together. During this time, John was coming to California and stalking my family and I. And we would know this because his dog would always get out. The neighbors would put the dog back. He would literally leave the dog with a big bowl of food and water and then leave the door open and the dog would get out because the dog was lonely and she ended up in the pound one day because she was wandering the streets. And they were calling John. We didn't want to get involved, we didn't want to piss him off. At this time, John also ran the car that my mom got him into a gate. I think he was on drugs and just ran it into the gate and then ran away from the car. (laughs) (laughs) So we actually got that car back because it was impounded and it was in my mom's name. And then during this time, also lit my mom's jag on fire in California. And the police had that case. And then John ended up coming after me, but my sister saw him and chased him down because he was stalking my mom at her apartment complex, and then he got on the freeway, and that's where my sister lost him. My sister came to my house, but I had work at 7 a.m. the next day, so she wasn't going to wake me up. She walked by my door. She heard my cat. So she was like, okay, Tara sounds okay. She sent me a text message, but that day I was actually going to the Jason Aldean concert. So I was very preoccupied. I didn't bring my knife with me that I would normally bring because I also taped up knives everywhere around my house (sighs) because, well, I had a dream that I actually stabbed him before this all happened when I was living in Vegas. And I like have dreams that come true sometimes. So I had this fear that John was going to come after me and try to kill me. I also wrote my ex a letter saying the dog's yours and wanting everything to be in order because I had this feeling of death. So I went to work that morning. And then I got off a little bit early because John actually called to make a fake appointment for dogs that day. And he missed that appointment, so I was actually able to go home. I got ready, and then I came back to work. And because I came back to work early, I was able to get off early. Probably left like 5, 20, 5, 16 at work. And then I do the drive that takes me around like 10, 9 minutes. I got to my parking garage. And I pulled up, the gate was broken. And I saw this guy who was backed up into a parking space and he was fiddling with a tire iron. And my dog started barking at him. I told my dog to knock it off. My dog did because he was a good dog and stopped. And I just thought that that guy looked like he was homeless. I didn't connect the dots that it was John, but my dog did. So I parked there, got out of the car, Then John grabbed me by the waist, looked me in the eyes, and said, do you remember me? And I... Immediately went into flea mode, tried to run away from him. I was unable to disconnect. He covered my mouth, and I bit down as hard as I could on his hand. And then he started to punch me what I thought was punching. Before this, I actually brought up my purse to protect my heart, and I had a nice leather clutch. So I thought he was punching me, but he was actually stabbing me. So I was stabbed once in my forearm at this time. And then I believed I was stabbed in the chest at this point too. But the knife literally went through my purse and barely got my chest. And then I was unable to disconnect from him. My dog was attacking his ankles at the time. And I dropped my dog's leash because I didn't want my dog to be in this fight with me. I wanted him to go run away. But he was fighting and he tore up John's ankle pretty good, too. So I fell on my back. I scraped my shoulders pretty badly. And John was on his knees. And at this time, the knife was out of the Del Taco bag. And I realized that, oh, this is a knife attack. I was actually wearing rain boots because I worked out a dog kennel. This actually helped me in my attack because I had more mass to cover when I was kicking him. So I would kick his forearms and my dog was attacking his ankles at the same time I actually kicked the knife out of his forearm and it landed on my right-hand side. I'm right-handed It landed in the ice pick position, which is the perfect position for picking up a knife and I picked it up and just like My guides god whoever like told me just like now or never basically and so I picked it up I still can't connect the dots and see where I stabbed him, so I felt like I was stabbing him in the front of his chest, but I was actually stabbing him in the back of his shoulders. And then he fell down. He gassed on me. And then I was holding his head so he wouldn't bite me like a zombie. And then I actually stabbed him in his forehead. And then the last one was to the eye because that's the softest point of entry to the brain. And that's when I know he wouldn't Freddy Cougar me and get up and be able to because of that. So I did the last two and And that's why I really remember those ones, because I gave thought to those ones, because if I didn't do those, he would get up and he would kill me. And then I took the knife, I tossed it away from the body, and then I started to scoot away. I started to assess the situation. I realized that I was bleeding on my forearm, so I started to apply pressure to that. And then I looked around, saw my dog was eating Del Taco, and I told him to knock it off because I thought it could be poison. He knocked it off. And then this lady came up with a yellow lab, and she just asked me what I needed help with. I asked her to please grab my dog because I already took care of my wound on my forearm, and I was good with that. And then more people started coming up at this time, like this guy with a bike, He came up, asked me if I was okay, and then Skylar, the 14-year-old lifeguard, she showed up, and then she told me, hi, I'm Skylar. I'm trained for this type of situation. What's your name? What's your age? When's your birthday? started asking me questions to get my mind back to awareness in that moment, and I kept repeating myself. I was also careful what I said because I didn't want to go to jail and be a killer. So I kept repeating myself and I said, that's my stepdad. He tried to kill me. That's my stepdad. He tried to kill me. And I kept repeating that so that people would know, don't go near him. Also, I'm not the killer, but I technically defended myself and Handle that. So I just try to give people as little information as possible, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. enough to where they would stay away and also not think I was the person that like intended to do this.
2: You know, hearing this story from—I've read it, I've heard it—but sitting with you in this room and hearing it, the profundity. I mean, it is. I I I I, I need a minute. You know, to to just the. The clarity you had, it goes back to what Collier was saying. I can promise you this. I would have gone into a helplessness mode of assuming this person could overpower me. I don't know. I've never been in this situation. But it feels like there was a clarity of how do I stop this? How do I end this? I'm going to enter through the eye. I need to get away from this. My dog can't eat that food. It could be poison. There was a clarity to your thought that was, and we hear this of stories from wartime, from people who are in some of the most horrific circumstances that this almost preternatural clarity comes in and you go, like Claudia was saying before, a full-on 100% survival mode that the instinct in you to survive overpowered any other instinct you had at that point, which is remarkable.
5: Thank you. I think it also has to do with I've been through a lot of childhood trauma Mm -hmm. my whole life, Mm -hmm. and then I went through a situation where one of my ex-boyfriends hit me with a car.
2: (laughs) Okay,
5: So, so that's another trauma. Yeah, so I think my system was already ready to fight and be activated but if it was someone that i was in love with i think that would have
2: been different oh that's very interesting sure. so you think you would have had a different approach because at some level tara there was like you said you were having the nightmares you had knives taped around the house you were living in a defensive posture oh, yeah. so his almost his physical cue immediately went to danger. There was no confusion there. It was just that this person represents danger. It's almost like a loaded gun. There's no ambiguity there.
5: Yeah, I knew when he said, oh, do you remember me? That was not like, oh, hey, how's it going? It's no, you're going to try to kill me and put me in the back of your trunk because Mm -hmm. he was trying to push me towards his trunk. I found out later that he had something ridiculous like 11 or 13 knives in his trunk.
2: At the point that incident happened in the garage, before that, how many weeks or months had it been since you'd last spoken to him? Years. It had been years. Years. So years had gone by. You had no contact with him. The stalking behavior was apparent, which, by the way, is its own form of trauma. If it was only the stalking, terror, that would have been a horrifying enough way to live. So in a way that I think that a person even going through the stalking element of this would found themselves stretched to the limit. And yet you lived like that. And for many people, stalking is a sort of menace that doesn't always realize into the feared behavior. Yeah. you have to change your life around the stocking. So you were living for a long time with this person lurking in the shadows and just not knowing how it would finally manifest.
5: Yeah. And I also think I took a yoga class like a week beforehand. And so like, I also had breath control then. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a lot of things that just aligned with me being here. And I'm also a major manifestor where Mm -hmm. anything like I manifest just comes true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: It's
5: like the universe just really has my back.
2: It's amazing you could say that, though, that the universe has my back. Because until that attack was done, your body, mind, and soul were living fully in the idea that you might very well have been about to die. So ultimately, the universe had your back, but the universe pushed you through a lot.
5: I mean, it did, but... I'm so blessed to be here and mm,
3: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
5: it made me deal with everything that I hadn't deal with before yeah. where I literally, I was so reactive too. I didn't know how to cope. I would have panic attacks all the time. I was also a child of molestation and stuff Mm. so my nervous system has always been jacked up it got me to learn about it it got me to learn about other people other brains it just really put me down this amazing path of healing and understanding and
2: that right there is the is the highest calling of healing when we go through the most horrific of human experiences and as we heal we find meaning and purpose of some kind in it whether that means paying it forward whether that's in how we love other people whether it's how we pursue creative pursuits whether that's storytelling or art or wh- however we do what we do but in a way that, in essence is focused on paying it forward that's a big destination and it sounds like you got there which is really quite remarkable let me ask you this as a question obviously paramedics must have come oh yeah taken you taken him what was it like in those early hours after you were now in, I'd imagine, in an emergency room? So they
5: put me in the ambulance. I told them, you can't put IV in me at all. I'm really stubborn sometimes, <laughs> and I hate doctors.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I get that now, girl. I was
5: going to say... <laughs> So I told them, you can't touch me unless I have my dog here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I felt the need to protect myself after everything that happened. So I was like, you're not putting a needle in me. You're not hurting me. You're not poking me. You're not touching me until I have my dog here because I'll let you do anything to me with my dog here. Mm -hmm. So they were like, oh, okay. And then they went and got my dog from my mom. And then my dog just literally sat on my lap. And then I was like, okay, you guys to do whatever. And then I also asked them, I'm like, so do you think I'll be able to make it to the Jason Aldean <laughs> concert tonight? Because uh, do you think we'll get out of here in time?
2: <laughs> I, I get it, though, that craving for normal for, I mean, you paid for the concert tickets. Concert tickets for $100 <laughs> hey man, girl, for I mean, lawn
5: seats. And I was <laughs> so- like... A hundred dollars for lawn seats is so expensive.
2: So I like I like the practicality as you, as you went into that, and so you're in the hospital and you are now you're getting treated. So they like wrapped up my wound, but
5: then I wasn't able to get stitches. I wasn't able to get any medical attention really until they questioned me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they questioned me. They took pictures of everything. So they unwrap my wounds at times too. So I was literally sitting there with like a wound open for like an hour. And then I kept asking, when can I see my family? When can I see them? Blah, blah, blah. I wasn't able to see my mom, and I told them, well, I want my mom here for stitches and stuff, because I've never had stitches in my life. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was like, I need her here. And then I was able to see my sister, Nicole, first, because my sister, Jacqueline, was fighting with the police. Of course. Jacqueline. (laughs)
2: Reactive Jacqueline. Troublemaker, but not.
5: Yeah, and so I saw my sister, Nicole, and she came up, and I was just so happy to see her. And this is, like, the part that probably bugs me the most about my trauma. Because I went in, they brought me in the stretcher, and then they were touching me everywhere for stab wounds. And then they were poking me just not asking for permission, just doing whatever. And I was like being poked and prodded and I saw my mom and I was just screaming at the top of my lungs and being like, mom, and I could see her looking at me and she wanted to be with me, but they were just like, no, you can't go in there. And so I was literally like screaming this whole time, just looking at my mom.
2: I'm so sorry, Tara.
5: And it just was so hard because after this attack happened, I literally don't have control over my body now. Yeah. And then so they did all that stuff to me. And I basically told them, I'm like, for me to be here, you have to give me some, you have to give me anxiety meds because I'm not going to be able to be here. And they gave me a bunch of like, other
2: stuff. That sense of no consent after the history you've had with trauma throughout your life. You said sexual abuse and physical abuse and all of that. That idea of consent becomes, especially at such an exquisitely painful time of your life, it really speaks to the need for that trauma-informed care in those emergency settings because that would have gone. You were already so terrified. You'd been through so much that something like that Small things go a very long way, so I'm so 100%. sorry. Yeah, yeah. so I was yeah. just thinking mm-hmm. of so all yeah. My session with Tara and Collier will continue after this break.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online.
7: smart and intellectual i'm kind of smart i think like it would be fun we have the best conversations like we have fun but then he would treat me like crap
6: listen to on purpose with jay shetty on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts trust me you won't want to miss this one
3: imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions i'm minnie driver
2: We forget how important it is, especially in those early hours, right after that level of trauma, how a person is experiences those systems and the people in those systems can be a game changer yeah. in terms of how a person heals. Another question I do have is how soon were you, because you're coping with fear and your own body having to be explored and acted on medically and you don't have the supports you have. You Initially, you couldn't even see your mother, any of that. How soon did you find out what the outcome was for John, and how did you feel about that?
5: So it's a little hazy, Mm -hmm. because I I feel like in the hospital, I found out that they sent John to another hospital right away. Mm -hmm. They told me they revived him. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay. I mean, that's actually something in my favor, too, because— if I would have been charged with it, it would have been attempted murder instead Mm -hmm. of murder, you know? Mm -hmm. But in my head, I was like, it's self-defense. There was no question Mm -hmm. of it turning out that way. And I get questions all the time now where people are like, oh, why did you dispose all that information? Why did you like, and I was like, Because I was innocent.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This goes to something that, you know, for me is, it never ceases to amaze me. The internet's a cruel place, but you have been criticized in online spaces. Here you're saying that day, people, why did you share the information just on that day? Here you are in a state of shock, and you were actually quite controlled, you know, in terms of what you were saying, and you were getting criticism. Since then, and I think this has been both of you, have oh, gone on to yeah. share your stories, and you've been criticized. I've got to tell you, there's a rage that comes up in me that actually freezes me for a minute, and I have to put the stuff down when I see the criticism. Yeah. Folks like you and, uh, and people who share their stories, because it's the sharing the stories that actually is what has to happen. That you're standing, that you're doing, that you're living, that you're thriving. Yeah. And yet, you are— you, you've both been shamed. You've both been shamed and well, criticized. Even,
4: it, it's interesting, and I was talking to Tara about this the other day, It's people are so quick to excoriate you in yes. these circumstances, but I, I feel that it's a defense mechanism for them because mm. it is so hard to wrap your head mm-hmm. around something like this happening to an individual, whether it's a 25-year-old woman, a 12-year-old mm-hmm. child, what have you, that their rationale is just blame the victim and just, okay, you shouldn't have done this. It's
2: almost an anger that the people have had or criticism that they've had of both of you for sharing your story. So, you know, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. How well, has that affected you? I've called out a few people, oh. too,
5: mm-hmm. and something that I realize is it's either this person that hasn't been through the situation at all, has had a sheltered life, mm-hmm. or it's this person that's actually in the situation now and is making excuses, mm. or it's this psychopath
2: or, you yeah. know. How did it? It affect you when you are putting yourselves in such a vulnerable state of sharing. Just again, Tara, I am in such gratitude and humbled by your Thank willingness you. to, to share your story here. It is I, I, humbled is the only word that comes Thank to me you. right now. And the vulnerability that br- brings out for you and Collier, I've heard you share your story and the humility and vulnerability there how does that affect you when all you're doing is sharing that not the i don't care about the why of the trolls i have i don't that's the, that's a, the issue. that's their yeah, issue but how did it affect you how has it affected your healing and your mental health
5: so going back to the stalking yeah it, feels triggering because of that. Mm-hmm. Like there's people that call me killers and then I'm like, I did have to take a life and that's that's so hard. But I'm here because of it. Mm-hmm. And I have empowered so many other people to fight back or get out of a toxic relationship. So there's really like a purpose. There's this is my dharma, you know?
2: Yeah, you absolutely is your dharma. You yeah. also you've also protected his next victim because there was going to be somebody else. You know, that they oh, mean that's that's 100%. That, that was it was a given. And in fact, it might have even been called since it had been years, that the grooming of that next victim may have already started at that point, but still there was this vindictiveness towards you. Yeah. So just as a last question, then then you did find out John had died. What was that moment like for you?
5: You know what's weird? I was happy because it meant my mom was safe. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think that's weird at all.
5: And It didn't have to do with me not living in fear from him anymore. Mm -hmm. It was me really happy that he wouldn't be able to hurt anyone else. Mm -hmm. But I was worried about his daughters. I was Mm -hmm. worried about his immediate family Mm -hmm. because I understand that everyone has to mourn. Yes.
2: Mm -hmm.
5: And I'm going to be honest. I didn't really understand how anyone maybe have felt until like my abuser died. Hmm. and then I was mm-hmm. like that was like a range of processing but I was so relieved Yeah, I was like I don't have to live in fear for anymore I don't have to check my back mm-hmm. as much mm-hmm. and I'm just so happy
2: <laughs> I'm so glad you shared it as a place of relief because I think that's always the pain in these relationships is that this idea of equating relief with someone's passing which is something we're told is never to be the case, right? And that you went to a place of empathy, I felt, for the other people who had to go to an experience of grief. But there's absolutely nothing weird about it. But I want to say, again, thank you, Tara, for sharing your story, for rounding out a story that in many ways was framed as a relationship story and a red flag story and what happens when a bad guy's in a relationship. And then, oh, and then her... Daughter killed him, and then it was done, right? And it was very different. And I think that this idea of that it was your mom and him were only together a short period of time, you did weigh in. This was not a bunch of people naively being played. But how it affected you, how it continues to affect you, but also how it's also galvanized you in your own life to, again, derive meaning and purpose from is really extraordinary. But also acknowledging that trauma has—it affects— A person every single day. And even today, right here in the studio, there were moments when you could feel that happening to you and recognizing that's part of your journey. So I can't thank you enough. And do you have questions for me before we transition over to Call Your Story?
5: Well, first off, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on today. I love to ask this question because a lot of people ask me it. Mm-hmm.
2: what is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath mm, it's an interesting question and i'm going to try not to get too pedantic and professory with it she
4: <sighs> said pedantic
2: <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so i did see yeah so somebody you got to fit pedantic into every conversation exactly. right so here's the thing Psychopathy and sociopathy, neither of them are actually straight-up clinical terms. The diagnostic term for psychopathy is something we call antisocial personality disorder. It's a terribly named disorder, but it captures clinically and diagnostically this thing that actually ascribes to the personality model of called psychopathy, okay? So with psychopathy, you have a lot of the things you'd see in narcissism, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, but there's a chronic coldness, aloofness, callousness, exploitativeness, manipulativeness. They, a psychopath has no capacity for intimacy, empathy or depth of human relationship. None whatsoever. They have no remorse for their bad behavior that's different than narcissism. Narcissistic people actually do feel remorse. They know how to work systems. They stay very cool. Actually, at times when you would think other people would be quite explosive, we'll talk about the sociopaths in a moment, they can actually be typically but not always cool calm and collected, because they don't experience anxiety. It's really believed to be that the anxiety systems, the autonomic nervous system activation in a psychopath is dialed down, which is why in some ways, they're kind of your person. If you need someone who's going to stay totally cool, like in a situation of combat or a really difficult business decision or even a patient bleeding all over a, an operating table. They will actually stay quite cool. That protection against anxiety, as it were, usually doesn't do them any favors. It certainly doesn't do other people favors. And that's why you see like psychopaths and CEO positions and leadership positions because they're able to destroy anyone they need to get to the top and seem very cool and put together. They tend to be quite parasitic in their lifestyle. So we see aliases. We see deceit, lies, and an unbelievable capacity to lie to someone's face. And whereas the rest of us, if there was a lie detector on us, it would look like, you know, like a person having a heart attack on an EKG, they stay pretty calm. So that, and for example, a lie detector type test is actually not useful with a psychopathic person. That's a psychopath calm, cool, collected, callous, indifferent, unempathic, no capacity for intimacy, and they're motivated only by power, pleasure, and profit, and people will serve one or all of these functions to them, but that's it. Now, sociopathy is not a clinical term at all. It's a term that comes actually more from the sociological and criminological kind of literature. It sort of reflects reflects a style more than even psychopathy, It's not as well articulated as a theory. It doesn't hang together as much. A psychopathic person almost doesn't understand rules and regulations if they don't work for them. They may be surprised and say, there's a rule against that? Well, that doesn't make sense. For a sociopathic person, they know there's a rule, and they break it. They understand the rule, but for reasons such as entitlement, they don't believe the rule should apply to them. Sociopaths also tend to be a bit more reactive. They tend to be more dysregulated. They tend to be messy. There are two parts of the story you shared about John that almost struck me as more sociopathic than traditionally psychopathic. And that was the driving the car into the gate and setting fire to the car. That's a little bit more reactive than we would typically see in psychopathy. But psychopathy, sociopathy, both, there's a really strong focus on vindictiveness. They're almost paranoid in the sense of everyone's out to get me. I've got a target. Target on my back. They're the people who would have someone taste their food or something like that. There's that kind of, again, it feels like a low-grade paranoia. Okay. Whereas the psychopath will notice like somebody's looking at me and then they will create a plan to get revenge on that person. The sociopath will punch them in the face right in the moment. There's, that's the difference. And so it's sociopathy is messier, more combative. Psychopathy there's a planfulness, almost a premeditated nature to their rage.
5: Okay, so I... Also wonder if maybe John was more reactive in those moments because he would also shoot himself up with testosterone.
2: Mm. So testosterone is a funny one, and there's an interesting literature even on what that use of testosterone does. The answer is it's not good, you know. And I think unfortunately there are some people out there who are just handing it out and should not be. And if you go to a legitimate physician, a true trained and ethical endocrinologist, they would be taking a very different stance on that. You even see it in a narcissistic kind of play that they're so angry. For a psychopath, that might tend to be more messy. Okay. But if he was doing it, let's say he set the car on fire to send her a message, you're next kind of thing, that's more psychopathic.
5: Okay, yeah, no, that was a message for sure. Yeah, so that feels yeah. more
2: psychopathy. I've never met John. I don't know who he is. I Thank goodness, never sat in a room with him. But based, if I, was a, I always say, if I was a graduate student taking my clinical exam and all the facts of this case and everything I've learned of John over the years was put in front of me, I would put my good money on psychopathy. It just was the aliases over time, the shape-shifting, the identities, the numerous people he left in his wake, the sort of shady life history. All of it adds up much more because it's so historic. And he was, it even sounded like he was not a good kid. What we look for in psychopathy is the childhood stuff. Sociopathy, not as much, but in psychopathy, you need that prior Mm. to age 15, even prior to age 12, acting out violence against each other, uh, against others, harming animals, setting fires, theft truancy bullying you tend to see that in psychopathy not necessarily the case in sociopathy so okay. I hope that clarifies yeah, no, it
5: yeah definitely okay
2: so yeah. that, there's the difference it's a lot of it has to do with theoretical stuff psychopathy is a very well articulated theory sociopathy is still a little bit more of a hazy theory and a terminology used more by criminologists and sociologists okay yeah thank that, you <laughs> give me an exam on that later the professor yes. and me will never die so um, I love it so thank you again These are my takeaways from Tara's story. Tara's story reminds us that we have the right to feel the way we feel about someone new we meet and who is part of the life of someone in our life, such as the new partner of a family member or a friend. Tara recalled that she felt that the way she felt either had to be in line with her sister's opinion or with her mother's experience. Something that we can all strive toward is to understand that we have the right, and frankly, the responsibility, to allow ourselves to have our own experience of another person. By doing this, we are able to become more honest with ourselves, set better boundaries, and be more discerning. In our next takeaway, one thing that Tara's story reminds us of and that repeats in these stories is the role of isolation in maintaining toxic relationships. It is a key dynamic in relationships with narcissistic or psychopathic people. As Tara's clarity and even simply her presence in her mother's life became clear, his goal was to isolate her. For people who may sense that this is happening to them. Finding ways to remain in touch with the person in the relationship in any way you can is really important. However, also to recognize the limitations you may be facing and to also protect yourself. It's not an easy balancing act. Tara attempted to find that balance and even tried paradoxical approaches like letting her mother know she was willing to get to know John. In my next takeaway, one thing that jumped out about Tara's story is the need for trauma-informed care in all settings. After experiencing a violent assault, Tara felt as though she wasn't able to set a boundary for herself. It's a wake-up call for anyone in health or human services of any kind to always check in with the person we are helping and simply ask for permission and honor how important it is for a person who has endured trauma to have that sense of control over themselves and their bodies. In my next takeaway, the after effects of trauma don't just spontaneously dissipate. Healing from trauma requires self compassion, access to mental health services, patience from the people around the survivor, and an awareness of how trauma impacts the mind and the body. If you are a supporter of someone enduring trauma or have experienced trauma yourself, be patient. Educate yourself and recognize that our bodies and minds hold trauma and that therapy is a necessary tool to recover. In our next episode, we will be hearing Collier's story, his story of trauma and having to navigate a lifetime of loss as a result of the toxic patterns of behavior in his father. Their stories are so different and yet they are linked. Both are the difficult and confusing experiences of having to make sense of personality styles and related behavior that magnified the harms of what they had already experienced. Stay tuned, because if you aren't familiar with his story, it is powerful and devastating. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett Smith, Valen Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Dervasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara De La Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donaghy and Calvin Bailiff.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.